and chapter 21. The message is entitled, Paul versus James. You can see that as a sporting contest, a legal contest. It's going to be, I think, very insightful and helpful to us. What uh, I wanted from my pastor when before I became a pastor was for him to open up the Word and share with me whatever insights the Holy Spirit gave to him, knowing that then the Holy Spirit would minister to me based on the information that I was exposed to. A very pleasant process. Well, we're going to stand and read verses 17 through 22, but we'll try to get to the 26th verse in the exposition. So if you have your Bibles, please stand. Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 22. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying, that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Please be seated. Oh, it's on. (laughs) Paul and James, they shared the same teachings about Jesus Christ. They loved the same Lord. They did not share the same methods of ministry. That's not uncommon, and it's not necessarily wrong. But there was a lot of friction between these two men and the men who were under their leadership as well. God placed James in that Jerusalem church for those Jews who were trapped in Judaism, who had a hard time transitioning from the law of Moses and the rituals, and that somehow these rituals made you... Uh, better off with God. That transition from there to the grace of Jesus Christ and his, his fulfilling all of the, 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 the rituals that they were given. And this, again, was a very difficult thing. And, and often um, it, it led to, to a lot of separation, conflict, and confusion. But God, on the other hand, sent Paul to the Gentiles to help them to come to Christ with no trace of Judaism. And that's the charge against him. It's spilled over. You're teaching now, you're teaching the Jews also, the Jewish Christians, that they don't have to be Jewish anymore in their religion, that is. This is what, uh, in a nutshell, it's it's all about. Uh, Again, this was too much for the Jerusalem converts, including James. James and Paul loved the same Lord. They were the only two known converts to Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ after the resurrection. James was not as determined to see Judaism replaced as Paul was. Paul was, (laughs) he was adamant about, we're done with that. We've moved on to the next phase of God's plan. That we are in the age of grace and it was very difficult. The two were always uneasy with, with each other. They had a lot of history, and it wasn't good with each other. And we can't, we can't escape these perhaps unpleasant facts. These are facts, and you can't just live in la-la land and pretend that everybody just held hands and skipped along, and uh, that is not reality. The alternative to looking at the facts, to me, are, are unacceptable. And that that la-la land is that mental state of someone that's not willing to accept what's really going on. And hopefully we'll bring it out. You might have got a little dose of it just in the the reading that we were just going through. Now, I should point out that there are some very good Bible teachers who come to Paul's defense in all of this, and James. And then there are just as good Bible teachers on the other side that... Um, have a lot of uh, criticisms for Paul and James. 
Um, and I hope I can call it like it is. But at the, at, at the least, you're going to be exposed to things that you might not normally think about that are going to make you stronger in Christ, especially when you come across this Christian versus that Christian. You're going to have to ask yourself, where am I in this picture? Am I siding with the Holy Spirit? Am I in a quagmire? Uh, what is going on here? And go know that you're not the first one to go through it, that there are those who love the Lord Jesus just as much as you that had to struggle also. And so this pressure that is going to be placed on Paul to appease. Some think that that's a good... That some think appeasement is a virtue. I'm not one of them. Let's look at verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now again, this is Paul, and he's got this contingent, this entourage of Gentile converts to Christianity. There are a few Jews mixed in too, uh, who are believers in Christ. And uh, they're bringing with them a lot of money. They're coming from various churches. For example, Trophimus, who's from Ephesus, is with them. And he's going to be the one they said, well, we spotted him in the temple, which, which was not true. But that comes in another uh, later on in this chapter. We won't get to it this morning. But suffice it to say that they brought with them a substantial amount of money to donate to the church for the Christians who were struggling financially in Jerusalem. This, is not a, this was not a common occurrence. This is a, a, a special need. Now, these brethren here in verse 17 are not the identical ones that Paul's going to meet with the next day, the elders or to the pastors, and, and James, who is uh, evidently the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. The apostles have transitioned leadership over to the pastors They've moved on. I'll come back to that comment in a little bit. Waiting for Paul just over the horizon. Luke, Luke calls it like he saw it. He writes it the way he saw it. And uh, the things he omits are, are quite insightful. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the letter of James that we have in the New Testament just after Hebrews, which is kind of ironic. Uh, he is the... Um, he, uh, Peter and John are gone. He is the leader, uh, not dead, they're, they're ministering, but they're, they're not in Jerusalem. He's now head of the church there. Paul represents the, the Gentiles that are coming to, flooding into the church. Now, the, as for these apostles departing from Jerusalem... Um, they saw Jerusalem as the city that stones the prophets and those who kills those who are sent to her. They complied with what the Lord said, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But the Jews that stayed in Jerusalem, the, the converts to Christ, they were old wineskins in this sense. They could not handle the change. Uh, you look at, the more you look into what was going on in Jerusalem, the more you're saying to the apostles, if I lived there, I would have gone with you. A very difficult place for Christianity. Uh, and it really doesn't change until after Jerusalem is destroyed in the temple. And it, then things will change a little bit more. But we're not there yet. All the elders were present. They were expecting Paul. These are the pastors. They knew his views on Judaism, and they held to Judaism with a clenched fist. They knew that at this time he had written the Galatian letter, the Corinthian letters, the Roman letter. He also wrote Thessalonians by this time, but the Thessalonian letter really didn't come at Judaism. But Galatians and Romans, oh man, Paul just unloaded on all the problems with uh, continuing with along the line of the old covenant and not coming into the new covenant. And this caused tension between the Gentile church overall and the Jerusalem church. The Jews outside of Jerusalem were a little bit more uh, flexible, a little bit more uh, uh, willing to, to get it, but not, not so Jerusalem. Now, this is the time of Pentecost, so there was this enormous number of 
pilgrims, male pilgrims, coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It was a mandatory feast for the men in Israel to come to Jerusalem for this. And so it's quite crowded, and that's why we read about Nason uh, owning a house in Jerusalem, a place for them uh, to, to find lodging. These elders were, uh, again, believers that Observing the rites and the ceremonies was a part of salvation, which Paul, again, destroyed theologically, brilliantly. They were fervently opposed to Paul's views that Christ set us free from every yoke, from the yoke of the law's rituals, from bondage. They were opposed to this. They were concerned with outside appearances. And Paul, of course, pointed out often, as did Jeremiah, that God was after the heart. And they were a big problem. These, they're known as Judaizers, trying to mix Christianity with the laws of Moses. Uh, these are the Judaizers, and they were a big problem in that day. In verse 19, and it's just going to open up more. Everything I'm saying to you, hopefully you'll, you'll see why I'm saying it to you as we, we read the verses. Verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done, among the Gentiles, through his ministry. Now, they're sitting there listening to this, and they're saying, hurry up and get past this so we can get to you. That is what is going on. As I mentioned, he's telling them the Gentiles were flocking into Christianity. And the Judaizers saw the Gentiles as the wee boy on the boat, sort of that uh, inferior brand of Christianity. They struggled with this. I don't even know many of them struggled. They were quite comfortable with it. They thought they were right. And I'm not saying they were damned to hell because of this. I'm telling you what was going on in those days, what Paul had to face, the conflict. Uh, you know, pastors face a lot of criticisms. I haven't ever had to face any of those. Uh, but that was, it's nothing compared to what this apostle had to in, endure. And uh, he, he brings proof with him, not only of the converts outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, but their great love for the Jerusalem Christians. Uh, they, the bags of money. Earlier he wrote to the Romans, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. I'm going there to love on them, to serve as best we can. And they brought some material blessings because that's what was needed. As James would later write, or he probably wrote earlier, uh, what is it good if you tell your brother, be warmed and be filled if he's cold and hungry? And that's all you're doing is just giving him a verbal blessing, but you're not helping him. Well, Paul's bringing the help. Luke does not record that touching moment when they said thank you and their hearts were moved because it didn't happen. You can't leave that kind of thing out. Knowing how Luke wrote, knowing how these people went, lived, you don't leave that out unless it did not happen. And it is missing from the story. How does Luke, you know, what does he do? He noticed the cold shoulders. He noticed that they were looking down on them. This low attitude of gratitude. It was, it was there. It meant so much to the Gentiles to give. But no thank you for your love is mentioned. Now, this is not anti-Semitic. This is, just, this is how it was then. Uh, and, and you can understand why the Jews would struggle so much like this. God had dealt with them in Babylon. You know, they, 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 you could understand it. It's just still not acceptable on another level because you say, well, Paul got it. The apostles began to get it. Peter later on admitted, he says, listen, Paul's, Paul's hard to understand, but he's right. Well, listen to this. Paul had already wrote this to the Corinthian Christians who were largely Gentiles. He says, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God, that the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's writing to the Corinthians. He's saying, let me tell you about the church in Philippi, in that region. He's in southern Greece, what we call today. He's, writing, he's telling them about the churches in the northern area. And so he says, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. In that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness 
that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. And let me pause there. He's saying these Macedonian Christians, largely Gentiles, wanted to give money to the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. And they really didn't have money themselves. But they were so happy, so joyful to do this. And it was a sacrifice. They were giving from their lack of abundance. And Paul is, is pointing that out. And he's saying to the Corinthians, don't let them out-Christian you. you got to step up too. You said you were going to help. Now it's time to start setting it up. And he'll say, I don't want any money collections when I get there. I'm there to preach the word. I'm there to count dollars. And so he gives specific instructions. And, and he goes on, he says, they were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Paul said, these Christians up there, they first sought the Lord before they started talking about giving. They didn't have just this emotional moment. Oh, we've got to do something. No matter, even if it's crazy, we have to do something. They said, but we, gotta, we want to do something. Let's see what the Lord will do. And they took it to him. And when God made it clear to them, then they took it to Paul. And when Paul found out that this is the process they took, he boasted on them to the Corinthians. The Corinthians stepped up too. So what I'm trying to point out is that these Gentiles, this contingency of Gentiles that came to Jerusalem, they loved these Jerusalem Jews. They were expecting the, you know, not a ticker tape parade or a red carpet, but they expected to be loved on. The leaders weren't giving them that love. That first house that they went to, yeah, they had the brethren there, but there was a large element, myriads, as James said, the, uh, that uh, just had that cold shoulder. And so this is what these men had to face. Earlier in Acts 11, Paul had brought relief to Jerusalem from the church up in Antioch, him and Barnabas, but this has expanded. Now, they did glorify the work that Paul was doing up out, outside of Israel. Verse 20 tells us that. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of the Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Well, I told you, Luke's going to call it like he saw it. Luke said, yeah, they, they, thanked, they thanked the Lord for the salvation of Gentile souls, but they couldn't wait to change the subject. And if you read it, it reads just like that. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And then they said to him. <laughs> so, in spite of all the suffering that Paul went through, uh, it was appropriate to glorify the Lord. Jesus said, without me, you do nothing. Any fruit you have on that vine comes from me. And they all knew this, even the Jewish as well as the Gentile believers. They all knew that. But now we turn to the... Paul versus James segment. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of the Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Why aren't they zealous for grace? So this is a yeah, but. Yeah, we see the Gentiles coming in. Yeah, but. Luke noticed how quickly they changed the subject, and he writes it that way. Again, leaving out any thank you for your love offering. We needed this. You say, you're painting them in a bad picture. No, this is Luke's telling the truth. And if it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. If it's in between, it's in between. You make the call. I'm not dictating to you, but uh, to me, it is very clear. And uh, so, here it is. They are still zealous for the law. That's what your Bible says. That's what Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They still like Judaism. The very thing Paul attacked in Galatians and Romans as being obsolete. He was, Paul said, listen, it served a schoolmaster uh, in the sense that it brought you to the place of education. But it was not the end of the journey, the instruction. Paul could have said, yeah, they're still zealous for the law because you tolerated them. He could have done that. He would have, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> it would have been terrible if he did that. But he would have been justified. He could have said, James, the only reason these guys are going around boasting about the law of Moses and missing the grace of Christ is because you let them. But he doesn't. Uh, the Jerusalem Christians were eager to address the elephant in the room. 
Paul knew. He wrote, I don't know what awaits me. He still's not good. You know, he's going to roll out as a time release because he still has to face the non-converted Jews. They're going to beat him up a little bit before he's rescued. We won't get that this morning. Paul, this would have been nice if he heard this. Paul, any thoughts on how to deal with this mammoth pachyderm? No, they never asked that question. That would have been very, you know, that would have showed that they wanted to work through this together. No, they're going to dictate to Paul what he has to do. And Paul, in, in love, love restrained that man. You say, you're making Paul look like the hero and James like the zero. The story's there. You, you draw your own conclusion. I mean, Paul, James, still a brother of the Lord. His, his letter is just as much scripture as any of Paul's writings. But on this matter, I'm sorry, I, I side with Paul. However, we're going to just get to some justifications for James, too. He's not like this bad man. He's, he's caught up in this mess uh, of rituals are us as an approach to faith. Uh, they just could not understand that Judaism was replaced, even though Jeremiah told them hundreds of years ago, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, the Jews know Messiah would bring that. Well, he's come. And they acknowledge that he is their Messiah. And yet they're not willing to abandon the old covenant. And this is why the Galatian letter and the Roman letter infuriated them. Their feelings overruled the revelation of God. And not until the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is destroyed, maybe about 10 years from where we are now, 10, 12 years from what's taking place here now, when the Romans will finally destroy it, not then uh, do you see the Judaizers pretty much go away. But that also led to the, the Christians just truly becoming the dominant, uh, uh, the, the Gentile Christians becoming the dominant people of, of the church. So when the temple is destroyed and, and the, the city is raised, it really validated all of Paul's teachings. It was sort of God saying, that's right. What Paul said comes from me. He's just the, the scribe, which is always the case. Paul's heart had to be sinking the whole time he's in this meeting. He's not the type of man that, I mean, he faced stonings, beatings. He's not the type of man to be, oh, I'm scared of these guys. He's thinking, what am I going to do to glorify Christ? How do we unscramble this scrambled egg? Well, you can't. Even Christ doesn't unscramble it. They have to work through this. And it's an ugly walk. It brings fruit. But the facts remain. These zealots, these pastors in Jerusalem, seem to have had no convictions that uh, the zealots outside of Christianity were wrong. So, Rome, so Paul wrote in Romans 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have this emotional thing with God, but it's not biblical. And he already wrote that. And they read, they would have known that that existed. Uh, they had so much, I don't know what they could have recalled, but they knew how they felt about Paul. And Paul walked into this. He knew this was coming. He just didn't know, you know, what colors would come towards him. But he knew he was, something was coming. And now he's getting the first wave of it. In verse 21... They continue, they're speaking to him, but they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. Now, most of the Bible commentators will say, well, Paul didn't really say that. And there's truth in that. But on the other hand, it's exactly what he meant. And, you just, and I'm going to read to you uh, what he said. But he did not see this coming, that... Everything he taught would be turned against him by his beloved brethren. You understand that as an opposing party, anything you say can and will be held against you. But here it is, his, his brethren. Galatians 6.15. And remember, he already wrote this letter a long time ago. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Oh, man, when they read that, what were you saying about circumcision? They forgot all about the new creation part. And they zeroed in on no circumcision. You'd think the men would be happy about that. In Galatians 5, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Ooh. Now he's writing to Gentiles. And, and, and they would, could say, well, he's talking to the Gentiles. But no, he's talking to everybody. Now he's between a rock and a hard place. But he maintains that ritual has nothing to do with salvation. You can light as many candles as you want and many incense sticks as you want. You can do anything you want. It won't save you. Nothing but the blood of Christ. And so he wrote to the Romans. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so he's telling them, Moses brought us to Christ. And now Moses said, okay, Lord, you take it from here. And Paul acted on that. They're not willing to do it. First Corinthians, he writes, again, a letter already in print and circulation. Not known as scripture to them yet, but they were in circulation. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become circumcised, uncircumcised. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And this is what they're throwing in his face. And so when they say, you teach, you're teaching, you're really teaching people that circumcision is not important. Therefore, if I'm a parent, I love my kid, you tell me this is not important, I'm either going to agree with you or not. So the charges were, were actually accurate. And that, uh, again, a lot of good Bible teachers will try to come in and say, well, they were fluffing it, they were just exaggerating, and there's some of that true. But in, in the bottom, at the, at the end of it all, if I believed in the circumcision for, uh, is connected to salvation, I would know what Paul was doing, and I would be objecting to it or converted over to his side. And so they wanted to preserve their customs, their traditions, and, and sort of blend them into a commandment. Had Christianity not spread her wings through this man, Christianity would have been a caged eagle. And that would have been tragic for everybody. So much for Genesis chapter 12, 1, 3, where God says to Abraham, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. Living Christianity would have been living nowhere near what she was intended to be. Judaism was that serious. I said this, you know, in Galatians, when, when, when the men, and I'll read that verse in a little bit, when James sent men to spy out the liberty of the church in Antioch, and Peter and Barnabas succumbed to that, Paul straightened them out. At that moment, Christianity was at risk of dying. Had Paul not stepped up and said, you can't do this. You can't, you can't be friends with the Gentiles and Jews come up and then you're no longer friends with the Gentiles, but now you're friends with the Jews. This is, we're the church. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Cynthia nor barbarian. You can't say, well, rich people come up, we'll be friends with them and ditch the poor and then the rich go away and you go back to the poor. This is what he faced. And he had the guts to do it. And it takes so much to stand up to people who you love, who you, you don't want this conflict. You don't want Paul versus James. You want to be singing praises together to the Lord. But sin has messed up everything. And what cannot be cured must be endured. But it has to be done in a way that brings glory to God. And you, you can't do it. Living in la-la land, pretending that the obvious things don't exist because you're happier that way. I mean, you can when you veg out in front of a you know, sporting event. And, you're, uh, and Yeah, you could escape for a little bit, but you've got to come back. And if you don't, it adds up. Anyway, verse 22, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, he says here. For they will hear that you have come. <laughs> Word will get around fast. It's already around Paul. So is Paul versus Jerusalem too. Again. He longed to make them understand. He didn't know how. This was not possible. Christ faced the same thing from his brethren. Imagine, imagine, let's make it real to us. Imagine being born in the Vatican City and being born again. 
How are you going to convert anybody? The Pope is a liar. <laughs> you know, you just bring to Mary as an you would la- you would live for two seconds after you said that. This is what he was up against. Or imagine going to you know uh, Mecca and standing up and saying, "Muhammad's a false prophet." Uh, you know, you'd get to say it once, and, and that'd be that. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact of life. And several, uh, Satan works through this stuff, but so does Christ. We're not to be discouraged. Paul, he wasn't discouraged by this. You know what he went on to do? Not long after this, write the letter to the Hebrews. He, the seeds to the letter of Hebrew were planted this day. And he reached a point in his ministry when he's out of Jerusalem. He says, you know what? Rolls up his sleeve. Now I'm going to really let him have it. And that's what the Hebrew, he goes so far to say, if you keep going to the temple, you don't, you're not saved. Uh, courageous man. Anyway, um, I believe that these Jerusalem Jews, uh, as I mentioned, just stayed in his head. Because, you know, you, when something is wrong and you want to fix it, it stays with you. And you, you, if you have the means. And for me as a pastor, I'm, I'm going to preach on that. <laughs> if it's okay, Lord. And uh, that's what, how topicals are, are usually find their way to the pulpit here. Anyway, um, when he wrote the Hebrew letter to Hebrew Christians, he was telling them to stop being Hebrew in their religion. Ethnically, they were Jews. That's no problem. Not even an issue with Paul, even though he was a Jew. The issue was religion, your approach to God. And um, if you understand that, you'll understand the, Jew, the Hebrew letter much. It will come to life if you understand he's telling them to stop being Hebrews in their religion. It, it comes to life. Um, Later, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he, he comes to Paul's defense. But he's not here in Jerusalem at this time to come to his defense. Paul's on his own. When Paul writes the Ephesian letter later, probably a year or so later, after he's arrested and he's in jail, and he, he's writing to the church in Ephesus that was so dear to him. It was dear to John, too. It was a dear John church. Uh, when he writes that letter, he's trying to un- unify the Jews and the Gentiles. There's one God. There's one baptism. And he's saying this one. And he, he, but he, and he dealt with, he hit Jewish elitism in that second chapter. That no man should boast before. By grace you have saved, not through works. He, he, he deals with Jewish elitism. And then in chapter 4, he deals with Gentile heathenism. He covers it all. I mean, that fourth chapter, beginning in chap- verse 17, uh, is just... Uh, just magnificent. Anyway, verse 23 now, he says, Therefore, do what, telling this to Paul, Therefore, do what we tell you. We are four men who have taken a vow. Can you imagine the look on Paul's face? He's just probably blank. The Spirit is restraining him in love, genuine love. And, uh, you know, not a mockery of love. But they had a plan already for him. They had to have already discussed this. They just come up here. You know what, Paul, how about we do this? No, they were ready, and uh, to them seemed harmless enough. Do what we tell you, Paul. He could have said, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> you know, see this pinky? I got more theology in this pinky than all of you. But he, I mean, his theology wouldn't let him do that. So we have four men that have taken a vow. I would have said, woohoo. Uh, but Paul's a gentleman. He's not, you know, immature like I would have been. This is likely uh, a Nazarite vow. You can read about it if you're not familiar with it in Numbers chapter 6. And this enters big into the picture. Because the cross of Christ completely set aside all the offerings. The grain offerings, the blood offerings, the hair. All of that was done with at the cross of Christ. And the church had to figure that out. Verse 24, they continue to instruct him. Take them and be purified with them, huh? And pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. What? <laughs> okay, let me finish reading it, then comment. And that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Well, let's first go back to this Nazarite vow. 
these men had taken this, and uh, they're at the end of their vow, there's a need for their ritual cleansing. Around the Temple Mount, there were these mikvahs, these little baths, and they would cleanse, ritualistically wash themselves uh, so that they could approach the temple um, and be holy before God. Paul, having returned from the Gentile lands, was ceremonially unclean. The rabbis would have said, you have to go purify yourself at the, one of these little baths. And that's what they're, they're, they're telling him here. Be sure, Paul, in case you forgot how it works in your trampling of the law, be sure you know you, you need to be purified. And again, he's, he's submitting, he's, he's taking this. Well, since he sponsored the men, that's why he has to do this. He's paying their expenses, and they're hefty. I'll come to that in a moment. But, but because he's sponsoring, he's paying for their sacrifices, uh, and when their vows culminate, uh, he too is required to be ritualistically cleansed. And so they say, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. I would have done it for free. I do my own. Can't you tell? Anyway, so they hand him the tab. You pay for it. I mean, this is like, are you you kidding me? Well, you bought all these bags of money. You must be loaded. No, I don't think they thought that at all. And I, I don't, you know, I, I, you, we have problems looking at it this way. And I, I think, to some degree, we, we very much should. <coughs> they, they felt this would show that the contempt for the Jewish customs and traditions really wasn't there. But it was. And uh, Paul was to buy 12 prime animals just to prove that he was still a Jew. A Christian Jew. According to the law, in number six, the Nazarite would shave his head and then bring to the priest, with the shaving of the, the, the head, he'd bring the hair, one male lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb of the first year for a sin offering, one ram without blemish for a peace offering, one basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened bread anointed with oil, along with a meal offering. This is the very thing Paul preached against. You see, now he's stuck. Now the Gentile Christians with him are going to be watching him. Paul, did you mean what you said when you told us about these things? What, what a, again, a quagmire. And then, uh, if they've shaved their head, then they would bring it to the altar and the vow would be completed. God is going to interfere with that part of all of this. They won't reach the altar with what Paul sponsored because the riot breaks out and Paul gets arrested and, and that's the, the last we, we hear of it all. Um, I, if, I don't know what happened to the ewe lamb. Maybe you know. Anyhow, uh, this... Um, <clears throat> Again, perhaps here is why the Lord did not appoint James to be an apostle because of this kind of move. I, I don't know. I'd be careful. I don't want to criticize James too much. I'll meet him in heaven and we'll act like this never happened. <laughs> James did believe that this gesture would overturn the, their, his fellow Jews who had doubts about Paul. And it was all a failure. None of it worked. It was all for nothing. Compromise, appeasement, for nothing. Appeasement, I have learned, does this. It makes the strong weaker, and it makes the, wrong, the, the weak wrong. It makes the strong weaker, and it makes the weak wrong. That's what appeasement does. There are times you can compromise. Sure, you want vanilla or chocolate. But on high-principled matters, we're not supposed to cave in. And it bothers me that Christians will say about their politicians, well, we vote them into office and they get to D.C., that buzzard's nest, and then they cave in. And they're so disgusted by this. But then when their pastor doesn't cave in, they're so disgusted by that. We played a melody for you and you did not dance. We played a dirge for you and you did not mourn. That's what Jesus said. Can't make you happy. Well, on an individual level, I don't have to be guilty of these things. That's why the lessons exist. 
It might be, a, uh, you know, a common thing, but it doesn't have to be my thing. And that's what the Bible always isolates us and says, where are you at in this picture? When Judas, you know, traded on Christ, we're very quick to say, oh, no, not me. But what about here with James and Peter and Paul and all the things that are going on in Jerusalem? So the, the problem will intensify because Paul taught that the ritual blood sacrifices were not only useless because they were filled in Christ, but they're now an offense because they suggest at the very least that Christ didn't do it all. It's not a finished work because if, if it's finished, then why are you going to the temple with blood sacrifices? Well, that's the point when Christ said, it is done, it's finished. So the problem intensifies um, uh, Paul having sponsored it. But now, again, in Paul's defense, his compromise was one of love, not agreement, not surrender, not submission to men. He wrote to the Romans, For I could wish that myself, I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I don't think he was being dramatic. I think he was saying, I'd rather go to hell if all my Jewish brothers could go to heaven. They're pretty intense. God would say that it's not a good, you're not good enough to make that kind of a deal. As Moses did a similar thing. First Corinthians, he, he wrote, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. I have become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, save some, without ever violating morality. Now, you don't go, I want to reach the thieves, so I'm going to start stealing with them. No, that's, that's not what he's saying, and it would be pretty narrow-minded to make such a suggestion. He is saying, I try to identify with people to a point. I try not to offend them unnecessarily. The missionaries, when they went around the world, they had to deal with stuff like this. When they went to deal with the cannibals, they didn't become cannibals to identify with them. But they did subject themselves to certain other things that were really non-essentials just so that they could uh, make headway. And they were very successful with that. And, and that's what Paul is talking about. He continues here in verse 24, And that all might know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Well, again, Paul is mistaken, and uh, I don't think we can miss that, because he did disagree with what is, he's being asked to do. But he's only doing it to make the peace, to keep the peace. And that is goes farther than just these two men or this group of men. Again, it was never, never achieved. It was useless. He consented to appearance, which is against Paul's uh, principles overall, uh, contrary to his convictions, uh, weakening his integrity by, by this type of compromise. I, I think, okay, we, I think I've made that point, but I want to make it again and again and again because... I don't know that everybody grabs it. Uh, he makes the greatest mistake of his ministry. However, as I said, it's not that simple. God works through imperfect instruments because he has no other kind. Not on earth. We're all imperfect. And he's going to work with James and Paul nonetheless. I would like to have heard Paul say no uh, in my immature state. Maybe ten years ago. <laughs> Time passed. I would love for Paul to say, no, I'm not doing that. But I, I see the, the deeper problems. And in defense of both James and Paul, they both knew Jerusalem was a powder keg of violence. Just ask Stephen. Oh, you can't. They killed him. In verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe we have written and decided that they should that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, we covered that in earlier chapters. What they were saying is, you know, they, they eat things strangled. It's going to offend the Jewish brethren that are coming into the churches. But still, this is a double standard. This is a, like, the, you know, we, we Jewish Christians, we're not doing that stuff. And we, don't, we, you know, we want you to not do that stuff. But there are other things we do and you don't have to do, but we have to do them. That's a double standard. And Paul picked up on that. Jerusalem's not getting it. Isaac's seed as the higher standard was, was what was in their hearts. 
sacred cows. I detest sacred cows because they're guarded lies. You know, oh, don't do that. You know, don't look at that direction. You know, don't do this. And it's like, where's that in the scripture? Where's that even make sense? Look at India with the, you know, don't eat the cows. And, you know, people starving there and you can't eat meat because there's a God in there. It's just, sacred cows are a bad thing. Uh, this being just a Jewish thing is uh, is unfortunate. Paul wrote again to the Galatians, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in, not for, uh, in vain. If righteousness comes by keeping these rituals of circumcision, of honoring the Sabbath, bringing sacrifices to the temple, then who needs Christ? That was his point. So he no longer believed it. But this hazardous holiness... Um, we don't have much time, so let me just cover these points quickly. In, in fairness to James, this was a pyrrhic. There's a word, a single word, a pyrrhic. A victory won at too great a cost to have been worthwhile for the victor. Yeah, you won, but you lost everything doing it. That's what this Jerusalem was. It was a high-priced victory. No matter which direction you turned in, you were going to lose. And it, again, took the temple's destruction to, to break from this. Had the Jerusalem Christians lived out Paul's Galatian letter, what would have happened? You would have had a civil war in Jerusalem. They, who, what, the Jews wouldn't have put up with that. Even the unbelieving Jews, they would have gotten involved, and that's where the violence would have come in. And so it was, again, not that simple. Malicious treatment by the fanatical Jews, would have been unleashed on the Jewish Christians. And Paul, no loose cannon, a brilliant theologian, he would have known this. He knew what James was up against. He knew what the other el the elders were up against, even though there was this tension between the men. As mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, For before certain men came from James, <laughs> he would not eat with the Gentiles. But when they came... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So Paul is there saying, you know, I got a problem with James, and James has got a problem with me. James comes up, sends his little spies up here. You know, that's what was happening. And yet the two men handled it maturely. When Paul gets arrested, where's James? James is toodaloo. <laughs> Glad to see you go. This is a powder keg, Paul, and with, as long as you are in this city, it's going to be an uneasiness about Christianity and Judaism that's going to end up bad for everybody. And so you can't blame James when you look at it that way. Uh, you, you know, on one hand, you can say, well, at least he could have helped Paul, you know, sent provisions to him in jail. At least we should have heard something from Paul. We're praying for you. We don't hear anything from James once Paul is arrested. Uh, and I hope I've given you a lot to think about today. If you've not ever considered these things, it was not this choreographed, the dance of the nutcracker. I mean, you go, if you've ever seen any of these things, you know, everybody's thought everything out, the costumes, the dances. Christianity in, in this environment was a slugfest, and it prevailed. Paul wins. Christ wins, I should say. And James, you know, again, no less the man. All right, verse 26, and we're done. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of the purification, at which time the offering should be made for each one of them. And that offering's not going to be offered, because God's going to intervene. And uh, Paul, I'm, I, this left a bad taste in his mouth. Is again, why he wrote the Hebrew letter, I believe, the seeds to that letter were planted on this day. James' position was doctrinally wrong. Paul was wrong to sponsor these men. Yet, um, what choice did they have? So, where do I look in the scripture to find justification for both of them? I look at Naaman. In 2 Kings chapter 18. Naaman gets saved in, in Israel by the Jews. But he has to go back to Assyria... And he has to go into the temple with his master. And he brings this up with the prophet Elijah. There's no one else that can help him. And he says, when I go back, listen to what he says. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there. 
and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may Yahweh please pardon your servant in this thing. He's saying it's such a mess. Sin has ruined everything so much. I don't believe in this stuff, but if I don't go, they're going to kill me. So may I have a pass? And Elijah said, absolutely. That's Paul and that's James. They're confronted with this, this Goitian knot, and God over it all says, I got this. Jesus knew this would happen. He was ready. He always is. Let's pray. Let's pray that I get more time next Sunday so I could keep on going. <laughs> Our Father, thank you. You just tell it like it is. And you let us think on it and the Spirit minister to us. May we learn to look forward to these lessons. May we be pliable in your hands. May we see that where sin abounds, grace does much more. And there's a big picture of it that we just looked at this, this, this morning. If you've been listening and as you've been listening, you've been hearing these things about how God works with his people, the salvation of Jesus Christ being a finished work, that a soul is saved by faith in Christ and in no other. If you want this relationship with God that is built on truth, never mind what the naysayers claim. If you want to be right with God, then you've got to come. You have to confess with your mouth, with your heart, that you are a sinner before Him and that He is the Savior, the solution to your sin and that He is to be the Lord over your life. You're not to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil, but to receive what he has said is good and evil, to come under his lordship. If you would like to receive Christ, then make this prayer in earnest, and Christ will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break the commandments of God, your commandments, and I ask you to pardon me, to forgive me. I ask for your mercy and grace to be upon my life. I ask that this day, from this confession forward, you would be the Lord of my life. I give it to you. And now, Father in heaven, if anyone has made this prayer to your Son, may your Holy Spirit guard their hearts. May they be unashamed of their confession. And may they grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.